This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 24th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Dollars coming to you from Phoenix, where we like to park above 110 degrees for an extended period of time because we hadn't done a period like this since 1974, and you might as well do it. And we needed to actually beat 74 too. So we've been playing that game here. So from a toasty Phoenix, but luckily inside an air-conditioned house, I'm Ed Zollers. We're going to talk about what's going on this week in the area of taxes. This week, we're going to look at an IRS memo that was released right at the end of the week that makes it pretty clear that the national office is informing IRS agents that they are wildly skeptical about extended supply chain claims for the employee retention tax credit. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the flaws in the, that they're pointing out in the examples they're having. And my unfortunate experience, way too often, I'm running into uh, reports that have all the flaws that they're discussing. And frankly, they are flaws in certain areas because it's just very clear that the burden is on the taxpayer to prove certain things. And regardless of whether you think notice 2021-20 is the greatest thing ever or absolutely wrong on every issue, the reality is that you still then have to go back to the law. And under the law, there are certain things you'll have to be able to show because, again, the burden of proof in a tax matter is going to always be on the taxpayer. So it's not sufficient to say notice 2021-20 is horrible, awful, flawed, terrible, could never be right. You need to have reasons not just the fact that a notice is not binding. That's great, and I absolutely don't disagree with that, uh, but I say that's not by itself enough to justify anything goes for an employee retention tax credit. So we'll talk a little bit about that memo. I'm talk about an interesting decision came from the Third Circuit, and this all seems to be triggered by last year's case the Supreme Court took up looking at uh, the whether a tax court petition for a collection case is subject to equitable tolling. The Supreme Court ruled that it was, and the tax court came out and followed up that case by saying, yeah, but that's only for that type of case. It doesn't impact deficiency cases. And now the Third Circuit says, hey, you know what? We think if we apply the theory that the Supreme Court used in that case, that we in fact, should be able to get equitable relief. And we'll talk about why that's important, what it means, the fact that unfortunately in passing, the Third Circuit told us that there is a theory to get around it, which the Ninth Circuit appears to have already indirectly endorsed. So we could have problems in the Ninth Circuit where this Third Circuit uh, basically opinion will not be taken up by at least that circuit. And then we'll talk about the fact that also, since it's contrary to a published tax court decision, why, for the moment at least, it's probably not going to be of much use except in the Third Circuit itself. So, bingo. If you're in the Third Circuit, great. If you're not in the Third Circuit, well, you keep watching, see if we get anything further, if other circuits start following the Third. The third issue we'll talk about this week is the IRS was asked by the tax court to justify their suspense account method for S-corporation losses deducted in excess of basis in a year that's closed to IRS exam. We'll talk about what the suspense account method is, the IRS's theory for justifying using that method, and the reservations that have been expressed by the tax court. Now, all they've done so far is kicked it back to the IRS 
to say, please justify and address our concerns. But certainly it seems likely that in the case here, assuming the case in question goes to trial, because this is just a preliminary motion for summary judgment, which the court has reserved uh, ruling on, uh, except to say that, you know, well, probably it's pretty clear they would have ruled against the IRS and issued summary judgment to the, uh, to the taxpayer on this particular issue. Uh, if, you know, they had to issue that judgment immediately, but they are giving the service a month to come back. So we may hear about this. I do want to discuss the suspense account method for losses. And also, therefore, you know, what's going on here with the tax court case. And potentially, if the tax court does change it uh, or object to it, what they'll probably accept, because the judge gives a pretty good indication there as well. So we'll talk about that. And finally, we're going to talk about a case that did get written up in the general press this week. And that's about a taxpayer who had to pay taxes on funds that were taken from uh, essentially IRA pension funds they withdrew because they were being defrauded by the stepdaughter of the husband, daughter of the wife, who apparently has little shame. Uh, but unfortunately, mom and dad trusted her. And then apparently having taken mom and dad to the cleaners and made them destitute, she then moved on to other friends of the family, friends and family members who fell for it partially, but then eventually became wildly suspicious well earlier than the taxpayers did. So we'll talk about that situation and why the taxpayers do have to pay tax on those distributions. So let's start with this IRS memo, General Legal Advice Memorandum, AM 202304, officially dated July the 21st, although it appears to have come out and been issued by the IRS on the evening of the 20th, is when we seem to first see it make notice, and I saw posts about it. The IRS memorandum discusses the attempts to expand Q&A 12 in Notice 2021-20 on supplier issues for employer retention tax credit claims. Under the employer, tax, employer retention tax credit, you may remember, there are two ways to qualify per the statute. And while we've gone through various versions of the statute with some modifications made, we've never modified the part that's going to be in play here. So there are two ways you can qualify for the ERC. You either could have a qualified reduction in gross receipts. Now, exact way you test that, the exact periods involved, and various other details of that one do change, uh, essentially, between the various entity, between the various options we've had. And all of this just deals with the ERC credit for 2020 and the first three quarters of 21 because it doesn't matter outside of that time frame. The fourth quarter of 21, nobody could get it except recovery startup businesses, and that's a totally different way of qualifying. So reduction in revenue, which is not what we're at interest here. And then the second one is if the, if the business, due to a governmental order that impacted uh, basically, you know, travel, other ways of conducting business, etc., right? That resulted in a full or partial, and we're really mainly concerned about partial suspension of the taxpayer's business, then you can qualify. We're mainly interested in partial suspension because most businesses that were fully suspended laid off their employees, so they didn't pay anybody. And while they qualify during full suspension, reality is if you didn't pay anyone, 
then you know 50% or 70% of zero is zero. So bottom line doesn't work in those cases. So we're generally looking for partial suspension. And frankly, that's what all the ERC mills that you see advertising everywhere and that you're getting emails from and phone calls from and all of those things. Um, many of which are businesses that did not exist prior to the employer retention tax credit coming in. And you have to assume won't exist as soon as the last claim is filed by them because no money is going to be coming in. Uh, you know, those businesses are pushing claims on this because that's the broadest one. Those are the theories they will use to try to tell you that everybody qualifies under the rules, which, by the way, they frankly don't. Or at least I'll put it this way. You have to get outside of notice 2021-20. And if you do that, you have to realize the risks of doing that. So we'll talk about that here in a second. Now, they talk about a justification for supply chain partial suspension in this notice, which is nice because that was missing from notice 2021-20. And let me make a point clear here. Nothing in the statute ever talked about supply chain disruption or a more than nominal impact on a business qualifying as suspension. Okay, Nothing said that a supplier, an order that only affected the supplier, could result in partial, could result in full or partial suspension of your business in a qualifying manner. And nothing at all ever said that you could have a suspension without suspending anything. Uh, that, you know, not more than nominal impact in certain situations. That's kind of getting interesting and off to the side. And I would say to a large extent, that's also a reading of the statute or a reading of Notice 202120, uh, which may be reading outside the context that's really there in any question. So I'll phrase that as well. Um, it's interesting. What I find funny about many of the promoters, everybody qualifies, is they will rely on 2021-20 for things that aren't in the law, but then ignore the, then say the notice itself is irrelevant, doesn't matter, is horrible, terrible, as soon as they conflict with something inside of there. And I'm, my own take is it seems unlikely a court will let you have your cake and eat it too in this area. You know, especially when you're taking part of a safe harbor and saying, ah, see, that proves we can do this, but then ignoring the other part of that same safe harbor. You know, the IRS liberalized the treatment, you know, with that, so we don't get into this discussion about the fact that, well, you were able to operate, but you were crippled to a certain extent, but not crippled enough to cause your revenue to drop. Because remember, if you have revenue drop, it doesn't matter why your revenue dropped. We don't link that to anything. But suspensions, we have to link back to the, uh, to basically to a government order that specifically related to business operations, uh, you know, travel meetings, et cetera, and that was tied to COVID-19. We have to be able to show all of that. So that's part of the issue. But in the notice, they mainly just had this Q&A on a supplier who was shut down by the government. And that was the sole supplier for something that was crucial to your business. And because of that, you were shut down. Right. You couldn't operate. You had to close operations because you couldn't get this thing. that was absolutely crucial for your business. And so because of that, you just, you know, couldn't operate. Let's say, you know, trying to come up with some theory here about something 
but let's say that you were specifically involved in a type of a specific part you needed manufactured. That part is not considered essential, part of anything essential, so the manufacturer is not essential. Uh, you, you know, you're on a, you know, just in time inventory system. So when the only per the only party that makes that part is unable to supply you with that part, you shut down. Okay, let's continue on. In the IRS analysis, we do note that the supplier option was not mentioned in the law. As I said, it was added by the notice. You will not see anything about a supplier option if you read the statute. And if you're going to reject the notice, then, you know, or you're going to tell me the notice is invalid, then it's fair to say it's invalid in general. And then we start looking, okay, give me an analysis from the law that shows this. And the supplier option is never mentioned in the law. A court could reasonably conclude that there is no such option in the law. The fact that the notice mentions it is, okay, IRS might not have the authority to do that, but that's not the issue before us today. What's before us is, does the law authorize it? You know, because you're telling me you're not relying on the notice, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. They also note that slow, solely having a supply chain disruption is not enough. You must, must, must show a specific government order or orders, could be plural, the time period they covered, what they stopped the supplier from doing, and why that required the supplier to, in essence, be unable to deliver you the product as well as showing there was no alternative source of the product and that that product was crucial enough to your business to create a disruption that was significant enough to come up to the level of a partial suspension. And again, when I say the disruption, partial suspension, all of this is under notice 2021-20 because the actual law itself says suspension. As I say, if I go to a dictionary, and look for the word suspension, it basically says stop doing entirely. So if I'm going to suspend the business, I'm going to stop doing the business. So I have to be able to, you know, so I would say per the law, it seems to me to be written tighter than the IRS allowed in the notice. And that's why I'm a little concerned when you tell me the notice isn't valid. Not saying it's valid. I'm not saying it might not be invalid. May very well be. Unfortunately, we won't know that almost certainly until after the deadline is passed for filing the ERC credit claims because the 2020 version of this, the deadline's coming up at April 15th of next year. So we only have a few months to get a court case to rule on this. And I don't see the court, I don't see cases going to court on this probably until what, late 2025, which will also be after the 2021 filing deadline. So I'm expecting, as long as it takes us to get court cases, that it would take a very lucky situation to get a ruling on some of the wacko, and that's what I'll call them for lack of a better term, uh, theories I've heard for qualifying for the ERC in time for you to have that court case in your pocket, assuming it prevails. So you got to come up with an idea based on the law we have today that this will work. And as I say, I get a little leery about people who decide to use those 2021-20 and then discard parts when they're quoting things that seem to be a safe harbor that the IRS was liberalizing matters. So that makes it a little different. What they said was they decided that a person could step in the shoes of the supplier. The link to orders that then eventually 
as a carry-on knock-on effect required them to close their operation. As I said, we have some particular item. Let's say you know we, we, we sell brand X trinket and we're under an obligation only to sell brand X trinket and only brand X makes the trinket, right? And we're not allowed to sell anybody else's version. And we are, you know, like you say, got just in time inventory. So we run out of trinket, you know, like two days after they can't supply us with new stuff and they were shut down for 90 days, then that would be considered to be a suspension that impacted us if we can link it back. Now, the problem is I have to prove as the employer claiming suspension, I have to be able to link everything up for the supplier under this theory that the IRS opened up with notice 2021-20, which means I have to have government orders. The supplier has to be willing to tell me about details of their operation. And this is a huge tripping point because a lot of suppliers are not going to want to provide their customers with various details of the operation that could then be later used against them or could end up being told to their competitors. Uh, why would I supply that to somebody in that level to let them look deep inside the business? And if you've, you know, if you've worked, especially with some large companies that like to squeeze suppliers, you know, and, you know, pull things off and squeeze them. I don't know. I'd feel real comfortable giving a, a company like Walmart, let's say, a lot of details about my operation to let them figure out ways that they think they should be, I should be able to build this or charge them less than what they're charging now. So that's why I might be concerned there, but I have to have that because I've got to be able to link up how that order forced the supplier to cease operations. And then, how that, as a knock-on effect, had a part or a item or a supply that was crucial to enough of my operations that we had to suspend those operations. And by the way, notice 2020, uh, notice 2021-20's question 12 does talk about suspending operations. Um, you know, I actually had to suspend operations, not just modify them. And because of that, you know, and I could show there was no alternative source of the product. I've got to be able to show all of that and then I can do it. So it's a pretty limited exception because again, there were supply chain problems, but here's the catch. A lot of those supply chain problems were because, you know, manufacturing in China stopped. Well, that's not a U.S. government order. And it's pretty clear Congress meant U.S. government order. Okay. It's also because we had, you know, when shipping resumed, uh, people had container ships in the wrong location and or flooded ports with way huge number, excess number of containers. So, you know, they'd flood the port of Los Angeles. Everything got stopped there. So then everybody tried to go to Houston and it got flooded there. And, you know, we just, we couldn't take all those ships at once. So there were those issues. There were shortage of truckers. And even if that shortage of truckers were because they were sick with COVID-19, sick with COVID-19 is not a government order. And there was never a government order that somebody who was sick with COVID-19 couldn't drive a truck. You know, we didn't really have those sorts of orders out there. That wasn't how this worked. Even in states that were the most aggressive in that area, there was nobody that said, hey, if you have COVID-19, you know, you can't drive a truck. That, that was never said by anybody. So bottom line, COVID was your problem. Now, like I say, what you got to have to justify any ERC claim are four things. 
Number one, per the statute, I need to be able to show a government order and a specific government order. I need to have documentations of that order that proves the existence that they were imposed on the supplier or business, you know, that we claim affected our supply of product. So I have to have the orders I'm relying upon. And this could be orders in another state because it's very possible that my supplier has their location in another state. It's possible that a supply chain disruption in this case, you know, maybe the problem is that the supplier is now impacted because they can't get a supply. We get all kinds of things. It could be very difficult to follow this. And remember, it's got to be an order. If a supplier just voluntarily closed their operations, you know, for the COVID-19 pandemic initially at the start, voluntary closures aren't, don't count, right? It doesn't matter what CDC recommends. As I say, Department of Agriculture recommends you eat broccoli, but that's not a government order to eat broccoli. Nobody's been threatened with their business being shut down because they didn't eat their broccoli. You know, nobody's threatened with being fined because they don't eat their broccoli. You know, it's just basically, it's just suggested you eat broccoli. But if you don't eat broccoli, the government's not going to come down on you for doing that. You have to all have evidence of how the government orders or orders directly cause challenges for a supplier, forcing them to suspend their operations. Right? That's going to be the key because that we need a suspension there. And then we can carry on because, again, it's a step in the shoes concept. We have to show that we now had an inability to obtain critical supplies. So we have to show why the supplier didn't have that. We have to show there was no alternative source available. We have to show it was critical to our operations. Right? And it's not sufficient that it might be more inconvenient, that it might only be available at a higher cost. None of that matters. It has to be unavailable. Unavailable doesn't say unavailable only at exactly the same price with all the same terms we had before. It's not ever anywhere we see that. It says unavailable. Again, if it's available, then the order didn't force the shutdown under these ideas. And then finally, a clear documentation showing how not being able to obtain that supply led to a full or partial suspension of your own business operations. And again, the term the statute uses is full or partial suspension. The idea of a modification that changes things enough to have a more than nominal impact is entirely an invention of the notice. And again, we're getting a little iffy when we're going to say the notice is perfectly fine for this, but totally wrong about this other thing. It's like, well, you better be able to build your own justification for why the notice is valid on a suspension that doesn't suspend things. Why would that work? You know, a suspension, a partial suspension that we can't point to anything we weren't able to do. Right, any, any products we weren't able to deliver, any things we weren't able to supply, that's gonna be the issue. So let's talk about the five scenarios in this notice or in this uh, memorandum. Scenario one, the taxpayer has a critical material, but they had a, they're not just in time inventory. Let's say it's, you know, you know this is critical. You know that if something happens at the plant, like let's say that you were relying upon you know, the drugs were only made at that Pfizer location in North Carolina, right? Well, obviously that tornado hit that, if you've seen the pictures, that, that thing's not gonna be operating next week. Uh, you know, they're gonna work to get it going, but it really got damaged horribly by the tornado. 
And obviously you're thinking, well, wait, if we only have a single supplier and that supplier only has one plant, then we're going to want to stockpile this stuff, right? So if anything happens to them, because, oh, by the way, they're in Tornado Alley, right? They're in the middle of Oklahoma, uh, so something could happen to them. Uh, because of that, you know, we're going to have a lot of supplies on hand. Now, in this case, the first thing the IRS did, which is a throwaway, you're not going to get it, is they, they said they could not show a specific government order that impacts supplier. All they could show is they couldn't get stuff. They assumed it related to government order, but they couldn't tell us which order it was. That right away is fatal. You need to be able to show what the supplier would have to show to show that they qualified for the employee retention credit. So I got to be able to dig in and show that they qualified. Okay. And they're probably not going to just tell me about all, not going to just give me their own study to show why it did. You know, again, maybe you've got enough influence over your supplier to do that, but I have a feeling in a lot of cases you don't. Supplier's going to tell you none of your business. Why am I going to give you these detailed and very private and sensitive information about my operations? You know, in this case, why should I do that for you? You're going to use it against me, right? You're going to use it against me, or you're going to go to an alternative supplier and say, hey, I've got all this dirt about how they do this and why they can do the stuff and why their stuff meets the standards that we need. So I'll tell you all that. You just agree to do it for me cheaper. So I'm a little skeptical of supplier providing that data, but that's okay. But the second problem here was because we had that big supply, because we were ready for the tornado to hit the plant in Oklahoma, uh, we have a bunch of extra supplies on hand because we realize how important it's going to be to make sure that we don't run out of this part. And because under the example, they never ran out of the critical product part, even if they've been able to show the government order, it wouldn't have mattered because it had no impact on the business. Remember, so we got to show both that the supplier had their business suspended due to a government order, and then we've got to be able to show, if we're going to rely on that order for ourselves, that we then had our operations suspended by that. And again, the fact is we had enough inventory to last out the time they were shut down. We can't claim the ERC. Example two, port bottleneck. This is a favorite of the mills, right? They say, well, we had trouble getting supplies. They couldn't move out of the port of Los Angeles, the port of Long Beach. Uh, the, I think it is the port of Houston. You know, whatever port we're talking about, they, they couldn't move out of that port. And because of that, you know, we therefore qualify for ERC because our supplies were in port. The problem is, do you have the government order? In the example, they had various, you know, they assumed it was due to an order, but they didn't have one. They had reports, you know, where the supplier also indicated they assumed it was due to COVID restrictions, but they had no direct, you know, orders they could show. And this gets even more complicated because what we have to show now is, if we're going to do the port theory, is we've got to show the impact on the port. So now, not only do I need the supplier to tell me what critical things they couldn't get, which again, could be very sensitive details, but then I've got to get details from the port about the orders that impacted them. And potentially, if we're going to say, well, it's due to not being able to get the trucks out of there because we didn't have enough truckers to make it work, then I got to get the trucking companies. I mean, in essence, this could become a huge detail to be able to tie down this thing. 
Now, you know, they referred to a TV report that said it might, you know, it might have been due to COVID-19 orders. Uh, that's also not good enough. The speculation of some random talking head on a cable TV news channel, not enough, right? I need to have the facts tied down, not mere speculation, okay, in this case. And as they pointed out, you know, the speculation on shortage of truck drivers was because those drivers were sick with COVID. Again, being sick with COVID is not a government order. You know, if the government order related to COVID said you couldn't drive the truck if you were sick with COVID, then I could see a link. But merely saying they were sick with COVID, was it caused by COVID? Yes. But the issue is not caused by COVID. The issue is caused by government order that specifically restricts the uh, business in certain ways and that that government order was tied to COVID. That's not saying somebody being sick with COVID is going to qualify you. So because we couldn't show a specific order how it impacted shipments out of the port, essentially, end of game. There's nothing much, there's nothing else left to do. In scenario three, this is also a problem. In this one, we had an order, let, let's say, you know, you're, you and the supplier are both in the same place. Let's say for me, they're both in Maricopa County, you know, and maybe the same city within Maricopa County. So let's put them both in Phoenix. And let's say that they were both shut down by an order here in Phoenix. It probably would have been for 45 days if they weren't essential, about the time frame that the orders applied. And then after that, they only really applied in an order form uh, to businesses that were, uh, you know, effectively, that, that were restaurants, bars, uh, those sorts of things, gyms. That was pretty much the only people that got impacted by orders here in Maricopa County at that point. So after 45 days, you know, the order's over, you guys can reopen. Well, it turns out the supplier is now having trouble restarting their operations because, you know, it takes time to get things ready. It may be a process that requires a number of days to go through. They may have had, they may have had some, some things going partway through. They have to junk, they have to clean the equipment, etc. So this continues on, this disruption continues on, you know, for let, let's say two, three months after the order's done. The problem is the statute makes it very clear that you're only going to be able to get this for the period the order applied. And unlike the issue for the, for the gross receipts test, in this case, the period the order applied, it's not the full quarter of that. It's just the exact day to day. That's what it was. So despite the fact that supply problems have continued, and despite the fact that in this case, we can tie it directly to a government order, the problem is the order ended and any issues after that date will no longer qualify anybody for an ERC credit unless there's another government order in play that now applies, meets restrictions, etc. So this was a problem. And again, the online people just kind of suggest any sort of supply problem you had getting supplies that you think were related to COVID-19 qualify you. That's flat out wrong. That one, I will say with anybody, I don't give a darn whether notice 2021-20 is valid or not. If all you've got is, I think it applies to government order, it's like, I think it applies is not enough to meet the base requirements of the statute. And that one, anybody tells me that's not true, they are selling you something and don't, don't buy the Brooklyn Bridge from them either. Scenario four, this one says the alt, you could buy the product, you could buy this product, but it was from a much more expensive supplier, okay? So let's say the regular supplier was unable to provide your critical supply. 
And I'll even concede it was due to a government order related to COVID, and we can prove all of that, right? But there was another supplier that supplied the product, but at a much higher cost. But they did supply the product. We would be less profitable, right, if we sold it that way, or we would have to raise our prices, and that would probably cost us certain sales. So whatever, we could do that. Higher costs and lower profits are not a suspension, right? You're, you didn't stop doing anything. You still produce product. You still can provide that product to customers. It's able to do so. You just have to pay more for the supply. Kind of like right now, if you have to drive, you know, if you're, if you're transporting, you're a trucking company or you're whatever, you know, we, we've had fuel prices go through the roof on a few occasions. And it's like, that's just a cost of doing business. Sometimes prices change. And that's not a suspension related to a government order. Um, you know, that, that was simply that you couldn't get the supply, but that wasn't the only supplier of the item and that's insufficient. Finally, this is where we have a true suspension. We cannot get it. The supplier is blocked, but for a very minor number of things we sell, okay? Let's say we're a retailer. Let's say we're Kroger. And we're Kroger and we sell tons of products. You're in a Kroger, you know, Kroger out here in Phoenix to call itself a fries. Other parts of countries will call itself different things, but Fred Meyer, Ralph's, you know, various names will be there, but you're, I'm going to call Kroger because that, that, that's, that's the overall name. And you step inside any one of those, you realize you're in the same type of store. You're in the same store. Uh, and especially because all the brand stuff now says Kroger anyway. So doesn't matter which one of those you're in. It's a Kroger. Um, you know, and let's say that Kroger, for whatever reason, well, just like today, we can't get sriracha sauce. It is a very, very difficult to get sriracha sauce. Um, and let's even say that, which it's not today. Today, it's related to the fact that there was a drought in the area of Mexico where they grow the specific peppers, that that company is the only thing they will use to make the sauce, which means the number of peppers they can get is way down which also means that the number of bottles of sriracha sauce they can make is way down. And that kind of puts everybody, you know, in a bad position. But do I think Kroger is suspended today just because my neighborhood fries can't supply me with sriracha sauce? No, that, that's not really the sort of thing that's there. And maybe it's not just sriracha sauce, but maybe it's garbanzo beans. Is that really going to be a shutdown of Kroger? No. Yeah, so you sell a number of products, a few are unavailable, came more, pro more costly. In that case, the impact is not sufficient. Now, if they were unable to, let's say, acquire any, let's say, produce, they couldn't acquire any uh, meats of any sort, I mean, then you start getting more to that area. There's a bunch of products that make up a big proportion of what they sell in the store. Then we could get closer to a partial suspension. But when the only problem is they can't sell sriracha sauce, they're not suspended. I do not consider the store suspended. I know some of you probably like sriracha sauce and you consider it to be a disaster and, you know, should definitely qualify, but you probably think it should qualify you as a customer for the benefit, right? You, you're missing your sauce. Okay, as it is. Now, want to make something clear because it's going to be told and people are going to say that and it's, it's a perfectly good objection. This is even less of a binding document than the notice, right? Uh, but it does tell us what the national office thinks. It tells us what will be likely positions they'll be training examiners to do. 
It also gives you a legal analysis, you know, to back up what what they're going to justify it on. Uh, you know, if in fact you challenge the notice, why they're going to justify backing up the notice. So we have various things here. So it's a useful document that you really should know and understand. It's also my take is it's very important that your clients understand that if they're if they're in one of these five positions and they filed a claim based on one of these five, or they plan to, we need to discuss the fact that the IRS is now on record that your claim is garbage. Now, maybe it's not, but if you get examined, you're probably going to have to go to court because they're probably not gonna give in. As I say, the notice is not the same as regulations. It doesn't have that level of authority, and I have no trouble saying that's the case. I have no trouble saying that you could develop a position based on the code itself that has at least a reasonable basis, and you could sign the 941X and the whatever income tax return adjustments you're going to be making eventually. Now, you can go ahead and prepare all that stuff with no problem. Uh, but you might have to attach A275, which I think is a smart idea anyway, especially if you're disagreeing with the notice. You know, let, let's take the whole long penalty discussion off the table because if it turns out the court sides with the IRS and not us, and remember, all we've got the code is the code itself, so it's going to be our legal argument against their legal argument, and the presumption is they're right. So, you know, we kind of have to go down that path. Uh, we need a better argument than them. We just need to be somewhat better, but we need to be better, you know, and we might lose that. It's going to depend, let's be blunt, it's going to depend on the judge we get. It's going to depend upon whether we're the first case or the 30th case. And if that first case is bad facts, then we could get precedent that's going to work against us that could be very different if the first case is not a bad facts case. That's also why I think the IRS is going to be very careful which cases they take to court first, because they're going to want to take a court to case that is a bad facts case and then use that to squeeze concessions from everybody else. So don't be surprised that they... and. It's pretty clear right now they're going after pretty hard the bad facts cases, right? They're currently concentrating on cases where there's enough really bad facts that, you know, they, they don't feel bad about taking it to court. In essence, they're going to dare you. And when, whether somebody's taken up the dare, we won't really know for a couple of years as to, you know, whether they're taking up the dare and they really, really, really plan to go to court on this and fight to the end or whether they're going to go ahead and negotiate some sort of settlement and then forget about it. That'll be the different issue, right? So we do know agents are gonna go on that. And this is the biggest fallacy I hear, and I've seen it posted in numerous places. I've seen it referenced. I've been on the phone with promoters who've said this. They seem to think that they say the magic word that a notice is not authority, and suddenly that means they're automatically right. No it means a notice is not itself authority. But the fact it's not authority does not mean that it's wrong. We still have to argue for, is this a proper interpretation of the law? Is, you know, is your interpretation a proper one? How will the courts interpret it? And that is a complicated situation. Now, I've said, and I've actually had discussion this weekend on Twitter, where I said the same thing uh, to an attorney, where I don't have any problem, you know, if the client's aware of the risks, you know, we're taking a position we know the IRS doesn't like, 
Therefore, it means we probably end up, there's a real good chance if we get challenged on this, we're going to lose every administrative level through the IRS because they won't go against the national office, won't go against the council's office. Uh, so, you know, you may need to take this to court. And you certainly need to be able, even if you have an outside chance of winning before that point, you need to convince the IRS you will go to court. If, if they're pretty sure you're bluffing, they're just going to disallow it. So, A, we're going to have to incur expenses, probably even expenses ahead of time to prepare for court if we don't go there, if we take this position and we're challenged. As long as the client's aware of that, as long as you have independently concluded, based on authorities allowed under the regulations for 6662, 1.6662-4D is where we have our list of authorities for the safe harbor you'll find later for reasonable cause, you know, we've looked at those authorities, which mainly at this point is going to be the code itself and the IRS uh, notices. Those will be the binding authorities we have, and to a much lesser extent, this memorandum. That's what we've got. Now, all authorities are not created equal. The code is a much higher authority than the notice and way higher than the general memorandum we're discussing this week. But it does mean that we have to have, therefore, a good, a good backed-up argument that references to like how courts have interpreted code sections before, how it works, and how it goes forward to defend ourselves. And if we have that, my own take is I want to disclose that in full on 941X so the IRS cannot claim we misled them or hid something, because remember about the five-year statute we've discussed on this. If it turns out it's due to fraud or misleading information, we want to make sure they can't claim that at all. Throw the A275 on so that 20% penalties off the table for substantial understatement because 662 does not limit itself to income taxes, even if the only regs the IRS ever issued on 6662 discuss income taxes only. They have prevailed in court on payroll tax matters here, and that's what this is. So be aware of that. If all of that can be done, no problem. I'd say go for it. And with everything out in the open on the 941X, I mean, I think there the IRS is likely to be a bit more cautious. And that's my other side. I think if you're the IRS, you want to take people to court and examine people who, aren't, who, aren't, who don't know what they're doing, who don't seem to have the information to back this up. If they know that you've got everything, then you look to be way more trouble in exam than the guy who just went with whatever fly-by-night organization promised him the biggest refund. That guy is way easier to take down. So that's also my take on this with the ERC. So as I said, take a look at that. We have the link in the copy of the slides. It's also on the currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com site. We have the article on this, and you can go ahead from there, get the link to download this memorandum. But again, General Legal Advice Memorandum AM 202305 came out on July 21st. Next up, this case may be very significant. This is Culp versus Commissioner. It's the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, case number 221789. This is an appeal of a tax court opinion. And the Third Circuit issued their opinion on July the 19th. Now, the tax court has traditionally held the 90-day deadline for filing a petition challenging a notice of deficiency under 6213A is jurisdictional. What that means is, Absolutely, there is no relief 
you can't argue that, you know, you know, whatever unfair thing happened that you should be able to go a minute beyond that time. Only for the limited items that the statute allows, which is if the tax court offices were totally unavailable, uh, can you get any sort of extension on the 6213A deadline? They've been very clear about that. So as we had the discussion last week about the person that was 11 seconds late filing their petition, yeah, it really doesn't care about the reasons or how sympathetic they were. The court says we have no authority because you were 11 seconds late. That's an absolute R view under the law. We're only allowed to take on cases where you file within that 90-day period. And if you don't, well, tough luck, go home. Now, last year, the Supreme Court in Bachelor CPC versus Commissioner 142 SCT, Supreme Court 1493, 2022 case, ruled that Section 6330, which is for collections due process petitions, one that was added later, that that rule was not jurisdictional and that the tax court had to consider, um, you know, issues where we could look for equitable relief. Was it you know, unfair? Was there some overriding problem? Do they have a good explanation besides my dog ate my petition? You know, some, something better than that uh, to explain why they were late, in which case then the court could still accept it. Now, in Hallmark Research Collective versus Commissioner 159 EC number six, earlier this year, the tax court said, even though Bachelor said that the 6330 things were able to be claimed under the um, you know, or basically could be done with equitable relief, that that was strictly limited to the CDP cases they were talking about in Beckler, did not apply to other things before the tax court, specifically did not apply to 6213A petitions on a deficiency notice. And that is a published tax court decision, meaning that the tax court now is committed, even if a simp- even if a, one of their judges believes that it was the wrong decision. I don't believe there was a dissent in this. But if there had been, that judge hears a case, they're now required by the precedent of the tax court to dismiss it if you're a second late filing a petition. Doesn't matter what your reasons are unless the tax court itself was unavailable for filing at the deadline time. Now, in this case, the taxpayer filed a petition well after the 90-day deadline. I strongly suspect this taxpayer simply didn't pay attention to their mail. That seems to be a real big issue here. The taxpayer in Culp claimed either the IRS had never mailed their notice of deficiency or they had never received it. Now, there are two questions here. First, the court looked at the question on appeal. Well, you know, had the IRS shown it had been mailed? And if it had been mailed, and if the taxpayer could show they never received it, are, are they right the statute doesn't start to run? And the Third Circuit found that it had been properly mailed. They found first there was evidence they did everything they're supposed to remember under the statute. They just have to have proof they mailed it to the last known address. That's all the law requires. The IRS had proof of the, you know, the certified mail proof. They had documentation sufficient in their files. The court said they had carried their burden to show that it was filed, it was mailed. And the court also noted that receipt of the notice is not required to run the statute. A lot of case law there that makes it very clear you don't have to actually receive the notice of deficiency. That's why it's so important to make sure they know the right address. If you moved and you never told them, well, that doesn't matter that it went to the wrong address. 
um, it's still deemed to have come to you because that was your last known address. If you don't file the change of address form with the IRS, well, that's just tough luck for you. But while dismissing that and saying, nope, it's absolutely the case they have filed the petition late. That is not open for dispute. It is not open for dispute that the period to file, the 90-day period to file the return has expired and they had failed to file by the end of that period. That is not open to dispute. But what they said was wrong was the tax court saying that we could not consider an equitable relief. We couldn't listen to arguments uh, for an equitable remedy. That is a remedy based on the equity of the situation as opposed to the specific law itself. The Third Circuit relied upon Betchler to find the statute did not clearly indicate that Congress meant the deadline to be jurisdictional. Now, weirdly, as the court gets into, this becomes of not, not just simply did they say it's not jurisdictional, but we get into this weird bit about whether they implied. You know, did they imply it was jurisdictional? sufficiently to make it jurisdictional, which is weird, but kind of how we go here. They also found that the context of the statute was not enough to indicate that equitable relief wasn't allowed. They're saying by default, we're going to assume that a court can grant equitable relief. It'll be in narrow and limited situations, but we're going to assume that you can grant relief on a deadline unless it's clear Congress did not want that relief to be granted that way. Now, here's the caveat. Remember that bit we said it didn't imply? The Third Circuit conceded that an organic cannabis fund LLC versus commissioner, uh, 962 F3D F3rd, 1082, and at page 1095, which is a Ninth Circuit decision from 2019, that the Ninth Circuit had found the language that they said didn't imply, didn't indicate that it was a jurisdictional uh, matter, that the Ninth Circuit had specifically found that it did. So that's kind of an issue, right? Why did they find that? You know, so the problem is in the Ninth Circuit, we may have a problem with this, that if the Ninth Circuit says that's our precedent and we buy the Third Circuit's analysis, and if that does clear the hurdle of saying that language implied jurisdictional status, then in the Ninth Circuit, which is where I'm sitting here in Arizona, but also California, Washington, Oregon, um, Nevada, as I recall, uh, and Hawaii, Alaska, and Guam, uh, we're probably stuck with that, right? We're, we're going to have it's purely jurisdictional, and that may very, very well be true unless the Supreme Court were to intervene and, you know, take up this case with a split in the circuits. Yes, there does appear to be a split. The question is, will the IRS appeal cult to attempt to get the Supreme Court to address the split or are they just going to sit back and see if any other circuit goes forward with this and allow it to keep moving in the third? Now, under the Golson rule, if your client, if the appeal of your client's case, your tax court case, would go to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which means your client as resides in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, or the U.S. Virgin Islands, then this does mean that you can argue for equitable relief. Does not mean you will get it. It means you can argue for it. You have to show why you should get equitable relief. Outside the Third Circuit, the tax court is going to continue to rely on Hallmark unless they decide to roll over and play dead, which they normally won't if only a single circuit goes against them, especially not when, as admitted in this opinion, they have a circuit on their side apparently too. So my, my guess is they are probably not going to roll over and play dead. 
So unless you're in the Third Circuit, which again, Pennsylvania, you know, remember the Third Circuit courts, Third Circuit is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and the Virgin Islands. If you're not there, then your client may have a problem there. The other problem is, even though Culp can act for, for equitable relief, my own read of the case is I don't think they're going to have a great case for it unless they got a really, really, really good explanation. You know, I, I think I think the problem is, you know, why can you tell me why you didn't receive it? Is there some explanation? Was somebody stealing mail from every mailbox in your neighborhood constantly? I mean, you know, what, what, what was the reason why you didn't get it where it would be totally unfair to, you know, hold you to the rules that apply that Congress wrote? And, you know, as I said, so far, I'm not sure this taxpayer is going to qualify under that, but that would appear at least they are going to have their day to some extent in court to argue it, assuming the IRS decides to go forward, you know, and do this. But my guess is don't be surprised if Colt back in the tax court, the tax court simply holds a hearing on equitable relief and then issues a decision saying they don't qualify for it. Because that should, that, by the way, that's expected to be the normal result. Normally, you've got to meet the 90-day deadline. So you basically don't want to hope you meet it. In Canwall versus Commissioner, there was an order issued this week. Now, that case is dockets number 23766 23776918, 23776-118, and 23842.18. If you haven't guessed, this is an S-corporation for shareholders. Have, their, have this issue in their case, and this is going to the tax court. And this decision came down on July 18th. Now, this issue involved a taxpayer that deducted losses from an S corporation in excess of basis in a prior year, not the year under exam, right? That prior year was closed for adjustment when the IRS had covered the issue. So they used what's referred to as a suspense method to deal with the issue, beginning in the first year available to them for adjustment. Now, this suspense method, the loss that was allowed but should not have been taken is placed in what's called a suspense account. Okay, so we establish this. So let's assume, we'll go through an example here because the IRS, IRS laid out an example that the court and the IRS played with and that, that's kind of where some of this comes from is how it's gonna work. But you would hold on to it. And what would happen is, at least on paper, is that no loss deductions or non-taxable distributions would be allowed until the income items from the S-Corp uh, absorb the entire suspense account because suspense accounts would be pushed against them. But that means you show that income on Schedule E or the shareholder puts in enough additional funds into the basis. So, you know, let's say buys more stock or loans money to the S-Corp. So we have sufficient there to go ahead and, in essence, absorb the suspense account. Um, so that's going to be the issue. So one big problem we're going to have here is how the IRS viewed this in this case. So let's take a look at the basic structure of the problem here. And what we're looking at here is, let's say, beginning in year one, we had basis of zero. Now, in year one, we have a $100 loss in the S corporation. And let's say one shareholder to make this simple. Uh, that shareholder went ahead and claimed that $100 loss, even though they had no basis in the shares. So that, that's a loss in excess of what's allowed. Now, in the second year, again, the basis is still zero. They have another $100 loss. But this year, they recognize they have no basis. 
they put this $100 basis, they don't claim a deduction for it, they put it into a loss carryover account. So basically they did that. Now in year three, they had $100 worth of net income from the S-Corp. And what they ended up doing was reducing that by the $100 loss carryover from year two and showing zero income on the return. Their basis would also still be zero, right? Because we offset the two. Their basis is still zero. And that's how we're done. So at the end of the day, year one is the only year that even, regardless, let's put it this way. Years two and year three would be reported exactly the same on Schedule E of Form 1040, whether or not they'd properly reported year one. And number two, um, their basis at the end of the year would also be unchanged at the end of those years, regardless of whether they properly handled year one's loss or not. The only thing that will be different is the loss carryover should be 200, but it's only 100. The question becomes, what do we do in year three? Well, in year three, they recognize $100 of income. They have $100 loss carryover, so they offset that. So there's a net of zero on Schedule E, and their basis now is zero. Now here's the catch. That return also, nothing would be different on the 1040 in that situation, whether or not they'd done year one properly. But the IRS says, wait, wait, no, no. We, we've examined you and while years one and two are closed, year three is open for change. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go ahead and put a, go back and open up year three pick up the $100 negative, the loss in the suspense account of $100. And then we're going to take a look at your return. And when you have $100 worth of income on the S-Corporation, instead of using up the loss carryover from the prior year, we're going to rather reduce that by the $100 suspense account. So we still have zero shareholder basis, right? So we've had no, no change in basis because we've wiped those two out, which is proper. We've used up the expense account, but Schedule E shows $100 worth of income, which, by the way, is $100 more than would have been shown had we done year one right, assuming this method is correct. Now, the problem is, what's the IRS justification for using the suspense account in this theory? Okay. They look at Reg 1.1016-6A, which is oddly worded, to put it mildly, but generally it requires a basis adjustment to eliminate any a, a double deduction or a you know or basically a similar item from being benefited by the taxpayer so that's the reference it was first suggested in field service advice 2002-30030 it was used in technical advice memorandum 2006 19021 and it's in training the IRS issued and that I've discussed in S-Corporation courses, which, you know, where we're trying to figure out what beginning basis is. In the training materials, SCO slash P slash 53 underline 05, underline 01, underline 03-06. So the IRS has been pushing this. And on exam, they use this. And they'd use it on this exam, right? Now, the judge's order says that eliminate is not a synonym for prevent and suggests the IRS needs to wait for a double deduction. The problem here is the judge says, look, year two, there's no double deduction, right? Obviously, we don't deduct anything. 
Year three, there's also not a double deduction. We are only deducting $100 once. That's never been deducted before. We're taking the carryover from two into year three. No double deduction has yet, yet exists. However, they said, went now, and this is where they carry the example said, but if we went into year four, and in year four, let's say they have income, $100 worth of income, that's the year where you know, the problem is our basis is off. And because our basis is off, you know, we conceivably now, year four going forward, you know, would be able to claim $100 worth of losses or, you know, that, that we otherwise, we, we could be, let's say our basis is zero. Get that right. So we have a problem here because our basis will be understated. If we have $100 of income in year four, that's the example the judge used, then without any suspense or anything like that, our basis would become $100. Now the judge says that is a similar item and in his view, that's the point at which you can apply the suspense account against the basis generated in the fourth year from $100 worth of income. So our basis should still be zero because had we filed the first return correctly, then again, year three, we would have offset $100 of gain, right? So we would have used up $100. Year two, we would have also offset the $100 of income. So the basis would have been zero at the end of year four. Without a fix, it's going to be 100. That sets up a double deduction. Because now we have an asset with basis, which that basis allows deductions of losses, or it allows, you know, or basically it's, it's going to be used to reduce a gain if we sell the stock or increase the loss. Said so, so that's the point at which you can do it. Now, they did not formally rule this, but sent the IRS back to justify the matter, saying, come back and tell us why this doesn't work, right? And use it under the facts of this case, not just a simple example. Finally, we're going to talk about the GOMAS case this year. U.S. District Court, Middle District of Florida, case number 8-22-CV-01271. It was issued on July the 17th. In this case, the taxpayer inherited an online business from his brother. Now, he wasn't really interested in running it. Uh, he discovered, so he let a business manager run. He hired a business manager who ran the business. But it turns out he discovered that she was stealing inventory and she was basically otherwise mismanaging the business. So not only was she taking from the inventory and like sold pet food, I think, and stuff like that. She was taking pet food out of inventory without authorization. And she was also mismanaging, not really tracking employees and doing various things wrong. So he's upset about that. He fires her, but he is going to go from bad to way worse with this move of deciding he's going to put his stepdaughter in charge. So what it is, we're in a second marriage in Florida, which is a lot of those, right? And so his wife, you know, had a daughter coming into the marriage, right? So she's his stepdaughter. But, you know, so we go ahead, you know, yeah, you know, we're going to trust her to run this. It turns out retaining the original business manager probably would have been much less costly and probably would have kept this couple out of the poorhouse. But let's go forward and go to the story. Because the stepdaughter turns out to be, I think what Walter Haig would call a dirtbag in the extremes. Walt would always refer to that when talking about some clients you end up getting an A&A, the ones that will get you sued. Well, this, this person was definitely uh, in the, you know, she would do anything to get money. That was her background. 
Now, he wanted to shut down the business after she'd run it for a while. He decided, I made the better thing to do is just shut down the business, quit running it. I don't want to be involved anymore in this stuff. But she convinced him to let her continue to run the business. Again, bad move. But he took it. Okay, so what happens here is she moved the business to her home, right? So away from where he could see it. She got him to give her 20 grand to build a fence for the business, which it turns out no one ever seems to have seen, right? Or confirmed got built. So it's possible that was the first 20 grand she took off with, right? But this is not anywhere near the big problem, right? This is, this is penny, auntie. This is minor. No, it got a lot worse. And she, yeah, she got a lot worse. Now she goes in for the big money. She tells her stepfather, oh, she's now discovered that the former manager and other employees, former employees of the business, all of them had opened up merchant service sub-accounts and they used his personal information so it appeared that he had opened up the accounts and they had defrauded many, many people. Okay. So now the credit card companies are coming back after him after this entity, and she says she's gotten letters has made clear, you know, that they're referring it off to, you know, county prosecutors, etc. And she says, oh, you need to get this attorney involved. But he but she convinces him not to just hire an attorney and go talk with an attorney, but rather to have her deal with the attorney. So everything for the attorney will go through her. If you're thinking that's unusual, it is. If you're thinking, why would you want to do that? You should come up with the idea that it turns out that even though she told him a real attorney's name, right, and said she was hiring this person to do it, and she gave a real name, you could find this person, you know, you know, you look them up, they'd be there, they're in good standing with the bar, looks great. Aside from the minor detail that she never actually ever talked to this guy and never met, and so she was pulling a scam just using his name. Okay? Now, she told her that the company and he were liable for the missing funds, which I think were well over, I think like one supposed settlement they got was for over $7 million of, you know, misappropriated funds that supposedly she and the attorney had worked out to solve that. She, she had to put a lot of work into the scam, okay? Now, and why, how she got the money she did was she convinced a couple that they need to hire the attorney, not, not just to deal with, you know, the fact this was a fraud, and, uh, you know, and, and protect the company from having to repay the money back. But they also need it because she convinced her stepfather and her mother that if they didn't do this, that her stepfather would be thrown in jail for the rest of his life. And he bought it. They bought the story. So now they're desperate. They'll do anything. And suddenly this attorney starts getting much more expensive. Right. To defend all of this, presenting invoices and other items and so by the end of the day uh she had supposedly you know run up this huge bill now as i said none of this was true the money they sent her to hire and make payments to attorney she claimed to have hired all went into her pocket right all of this was just her skimming and scamming her parent her mother and her stepfather and making them both totally broke which she succeeded in doing Okay, you know, th this person is a problem person, to put it mildly. By the way, yes, she's been convicted for this now, right? And she's spending time in jail. Now, you know, what happened was that Mr. Gomas took money from all of his retirement accounts 
to make these payments and pay tax on those large distributions. So he was taking up money from the account. He ended up taking over $1.1 million from the accounts, and of that, over $700,000 went to his daughter, and appears the vast majority of the rest was withheld on the distribution to pay his taxes. And he did have the right amount withheld, so he kind of made the tax number work for 2017, the year when all this happened. But now she's got a problem. Mom and dad are broke. So she starts turning to friends of the family and the family itself, you know, other family members to try to, you know, to get more money, and she starts scamming them. But it turns out the other family members, at least some, at least one of the friends or one of the family members, wasn't quite as gullible as uh, mom and dad. And she did get 200 grand from these people, but when she, by the time she got that, she basically uh, was found out. You know, the, somebody in there started investigating her and they discovered that everything she was saying was a total and absolute scam, right? And, you know, they contacted the attorney whose answer was kind of like, who are you? You know, huh? I, I don't represent you. I don't represent you. I don't represent that company. I've never represented either one of you. What do you mean, you know, 700,000 fees? I, you know, you've never paid me anything. I have no idea who this is. And I, your daughter, I suppose your daughter-in-law or daughter, your stepdaughter or daughter was, it's like, I'd never do that. It's like, so, you know, they discover the whole thing's a major league scam. Daughter eventually uh, believes she comes clean and ends up in jail after all of this, right? Because, of course, now she's got a little trouble. She's running out of money, which means I, I suspect at this point, since I suspect she's poured through it, she probably now is going for the free room and board at the pens, you know, at basically at a state penitentiary in Florida. I think she was also in Florida, as I recall. Uh, you know, she, she might be going for that. But anyway, she did it. Now, you know, the family informed the parents two years after she had managed to take them for all the retirement funds that they'd been scammed. So they amended their tax returns. Now, on the original 2017 return, they reported the entire distribution. And they got a very small refund because they were slightly overpaid by a few hundred bucks on the total taxes that were imposed on this huge distributions. So they got really close to the right withholding number. I guess that, that was good news. But the problem is now, you know, they had paid over $400,000 in taxes on money that they took out of their account that was all related to this scam run by the daughter, the stepdaughter slash daughter. Right. Now, the IRS said, wait, wait, wait. You want a refund and you tell me it's because either you, you, know, you, you never benefited from it, it's really her money, or you're telling me that it's because it related to paying business expenses for legal fees for the business you were in. And the IRS said, no, we don't buy either of those. We don't believe, you know, it was a distribution. Distributions from retirement accounts are taxed to the beneficiary. And, you know, and that's the only real exceptions are if somebody scammed you in the sense of they, they forged your name and got Vanguard to send the $1.1 million check to them instead of to you, but they said, that didn't happen here. You, 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 you know, you told the custodian to transfer $1.1 million to your checking account where it went. It was in your checking account. And then from your checking account, you transferred funds, some of them to your daughter. And obviously 400 plus thousand funds were used to pay your taxes. 
and some other funds from the distributions were used to pay other expenses. So you had full control of those dollars all the way through, you know, and yeah, I feel bad that your daughter scammed you, but let's think about it. You know, if, if somebody steals money from you, probably you had that tax at some point, right? You know, you, you know, you go, you cash your paycheck, you put it in, you get like, you know, a hundred bucks from the ATM and somebody then shows up and robs you and takes that hundred bucks. Well, that doesn't mean the hundred dollars of your salary is not taxable. Now, as I said, that, that that's kind of how it works. And the uh, Court of Appeals agreed on that, right? The key problem was first about it being taxable to her was that, no, you ordered the distribution. The distribution came to your checking account. The distribution was fully under your control. It hit your checking account. Now, after it hits that, that was the issue. That was the point at which it became taxable to you. After it was in there, the fact that you then sent it off to your daughter to pay a non-existent lawyer is sad, but it's not relevant to who pays tax on the $1.1 million. Just like, you know, you, you take $1.1 million out of your retirement account and you decide to use that, you know, and send it to Bernie Madoff. Well, that's nice, but you're still taxable on the retirement account, right? When you, you know, if you sent that money to Bernie, the net amount to Bernie to invest when he was not really doing anything with the money, he was you know, just purely using a pyramid scheme. Uh, yeah, that doesn't make the distribution non-taxable. Same problem there. They noted it would have probably been a very different result had she forged their name and stolen the money from the account directly. Because then there is case law that says, well, in that case, you weren't the, you weren't the actual person receiving it. It was misdirected. She has income for that amount, but you know, you don't have income from the retirement account because there was never an authorized distribution to you, even if the funds are now gone permanently, right? Okay. What about the business expense? Because they issued her a 1099 miscellaneous on this. They said, here's the problem. There were no legal fees were ever paid. There were none. There were, and secondly, he had no current operating business, which any expenses could be attached. There was nothing going on. This was a personal, personal criminal and civil case or would have been if any of it had been real, which it wasn't, right? There's your problem. It was pure and simple, just theft. Now, the judge tells us that while it was pure and simple, just theft, um, you know, he did note that because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that theft that would have been deductible previously is no longer deductible. Right. He was out. Now, the judge then says, you know, he, he, he first thing he criticizes the IRS for not just waiving the tax. I find that a little disingenuous because he doesn't do it either. And I have some theories he could have spun to have made it non-taxable if he wanted to. I realize he doesn't like the bad facts equal bad law scenario, but that's just as bad for the IRS to decide among people not authorized to get money who are just going to send money to. You know, it's the same problem he's trying to deal with himself. And he didn't deal with this. I'm a little concerned there. And then he says, oh, Congress could never have foreseen this. And that's also people that got stuff stolen from them, not getting a tax deduction is going to be a problem. And it could be big. And, you know, a lot of those thefts, maybe they convince people to, you know, sell things, bigger, bigger gains. This is not a scenario that unless Congress, unless we just assume Congress are total idiots, and have no idea whatsoever what a tax deduction means and what theft means. They had to know that when they took this out of the law, 
There were going to be cases like this. And yes, this is extreme, but to say Congress couldn't have foreseen this, I think is disingenuous at best. This is just kind of the natural consequence of taking this out of the law. And Congress felt it was worth it for the benefits of the TCJ. But, you know, it's a choice they made. And that's how we go. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 24th, 2020, 2023. Get the right year in there. Careful tax developments are brought to you by your state society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. Ed Zollers here. You can email me, edzollers at currentfilltaxdevelopments.com. I also am active on the New Jersey Society of CPAs website uh, for Connect, Arizona Society of CPAs, uh, also Illinois uh, and um, Minnesota and Washington, as well as uh, looking in on the Idaho Society discussion board. So you're on any of those you can post there. Otherwise, hopefully you've had a good week so far. Uh, hopefully you're here coming to the end of July. Uh, we're hoping like mad that within some time here in the next week, uh, we will finally drop so our highs during the day are below 110 here in Phoenix, at least the official ones at the airport. Um, but so far it doesn't look so good. Uh, you know, at best they're, they're speaking maybe a week from today, I'm recording on Sunday, we might drop below. We'll keep an eye on that. Otherwise, I will be back here next week and we'll talk about what's been going on in the area of current federal tax developments.